Our text is Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah 4. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. And he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. After the sermon, let's sing hymn 40, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet. He's called one of the minor prophets, not because he was minor, but because his prophecy was shorter than, let's say, Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Zechariah also lived at the same time as Haggai, another Old Testament minor prophet. They lived and they, they were prophesying about 20 years after Israel came out of the Babylonian captivity. It was almost a full century earlier, about 85 years, that Nebuchadnezzar first came to Jerusalem. And slowly but surely, he destroyed it and carried Judah away into captivity. They returned from captivity around 539 B.C. And our text takes place around 520 B.C. And things were not going well. You see, everything had been destroyed. Jerusalem, the homes, the temple, it was rubble, nothing left over. And rebuilding was not going well. People were building their homes, they had laid the foundation of the temple. That took almost 20 years, and they had gone no further. These were troubling times. You see, there's a couple of things at stake. When you come out of captivity and you, you return to your devastated land, the first thing you want is a return to normalcy. 
You've got to build your homes, the city walls, and the temple, that everything is back the way it used to be. But even deeper than that, the rebuilding of everything, and particularly the rebuilding of the temple, would be an assurance that God was with them, God was Emmanuel, God with us, and dwelling in our midst. But as we said, things were not going well. Now, from our perspective today, we can say, well, we have sympathy with our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament, but quite frankly, what do I care whether they rebuilt the temple or not? What does it matter to me? An Old Testament building? Two and a half millennia ago? What what, what do I care? Brothers and sisters, the rebuilding of that temple is essential to our happiness, our well-being, and our salvation. The point is, if there is ever a moment in history where God says the obstacles are too big for me to dwell in your midst, then we got a problem. If at any point in history there is a mountain too high to climb, a river too wide to cross, that God and his people say, look, there's nothing we can do about it. We, We can't overcome this obstacle. God cannot dwell in our midst. If that happens once in history then the question for us today is, what assurance is there that God is with us today? I mean, our obstacles today are huge. Living in such a secular world, living in a, in a country that is definitely a post-Christian nation and culture. There's so much attacks on the Christian faith, so much ridicule and so much seduction of all of us particularly for our children and young people growing up in this modern age, are the obstacles too big for God to be with his church and to protect us and to guide us into the light? What our text will teach us this morning is a very positive and comforting message that no obstacle is too big for God. He will always be with his people. We summarize our our text in this way. By means of his spirit, the Lord will turn the day of little things into something great. We'll look at the vision, the message, and the implications. We read in the opening of Zechariah 4, Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. Now that angel had come to Zechariah several times already and always brought him a vision. Waking him up doesn't literally mean he woke him up from from sleep, but but he woke him up to a higher level of consciousness. The angel raised up Zechariah to a high sphere where he could see things that, that normally people cannot see. And he receives in our chapter this amazing vision. Now that vision is very much tied to the vision in the previous chapter that we read together, Zechariah 3, which ended with these words, In that day each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Now that's a symbol of peace and security. If at that time you could sit under your own vine and own fig tree and say, this is my place in, in the land of God, then you can say, it is well It is well with my soul. But the chapter explains why that's the case. We read there about Joshua the high priest in filthy clothing. Well, when when a high priest has filthy clothing on, 
as basically saying to the people, you're all filthy because of your sins. And that's why you went into 70 years of exile in Babylon. But the Lord says, take off the clothes and put on clean clothes. And in a single day, says the Lord, I will atone for the sins of this land and of this people. So God is saying to his people, I forgive your sins. I am with you. You sit under your own vine and own fig tree. So we, we are in our, in our text in this vision of the, of the golden lampstand in a setting of God is with his people. He loves them. And in the coming Christ has washed away their sins. So now Zechariah has a new vision. This is what he sees. I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Then in verse 12, we read about those two olive trees these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil. I don't know if you can picture this. In fact, in Hebrew, the image is very difficult, and you can get lost in the details. I propose to you, we won't get lost in the details. Just try to to paint a, a very simple clear picture that we can all understand. What you have is this golden lampstand. And on it are seven lights. Above it is a bowl. Perhaps on the back of the lampstand is is an arm coming up with with a bowl. It's got seven pipes coming out of that bowl. One pipe to each light. Then the two olive trees hang over that and they drip the oil into the bowl so that the oil runs from the bowl down the pipes to the lights, and they burn brightly. Now, olive oil is a very precious oil. With the two olive trees standing there, continually dripping, it is a never-ending supply. So we're getting a pretty good picture here. The lampstand, with its seven lamps, continue to burn, because there's a never-ending supply of olive oil coming to the lamps, so that they can burn brightly. Now that's the, the vision itself. And that brings us to our second point, the message. In verse 4, Zechariah asked the angel, what does this mean? And the angel surprised, as if to say, Zechariah, can you not figure that out? He can't. So the angel explains in verse 6. This is what the word of the Lord to this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That's awesome. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Every human being with even an ounce of common sense knows how powerless we are to accomplish our goals. If I live by my power, by my might, I have no future. Think, brothers and sisters, of how this church began or how how the Canadian Reformed Church started here in the Edmonton area. Largely, almost 60 years ago, it was a group of immigrants that came from Europe. 
They had nothing. No money. They didn't know the language. Some lived in converted chicken coops. They said to themselves, how can we ever build a church building, let alone a Christian school or a Rehoboth or a theological college? And now we have all those things. You have a beautiful building. You've got an addition going. There's a school standing over there. How did that come about? Maybe we, we forget. Maybe we say, that's because we work so hard. That's by our power, by our might. But that's not true. You did not do it. We were reminded of that a few weeks ago when we had Reverend Jim Wittevain, our missionary in Prince George. He was here in our midst speaking of his work there in Prince George, northern B.C., He just arrived there. Now, Prince George is not a nice town. Uh, Maybe some people it is, but it's not what you'd call a godly place. Young Jim Wittevane comes there. He puts a little ad in the newspaper letting people know he's there. And if they want, they can come to his home and he will share the word of God with him. And he informed us that that little beginning is exploding. With people coming, they can't even meet in his home anymore. They have to have a regular building. Because just out of darkness, all these people are, are coming and want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jim Wittavane, Reverend Wittavane said, I didn't do it. It's not by my power. It's not by my might. It's by the grace of God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the rich blessing of the Holy Spirit that allows the church to be gathered, defend, to be preserved, and to move forward gloriously in history. That's true for every aspect of life, whether it's a mission post, whether it's building our school, or whether it's you in your own life, in your marriage, raising children, work, evangelizing. It's not by my might, it's not by my power that I accomplish these things, but by the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, He is the power, he is the blessing that accomplishes amazing things in our lives. Now, we see in our text that that word is delivered primarily to Zerubbabel. At that time, you had Joshua's high priest. Zerubbabel, that's a descendant of David, although at this time he's only a governor. And he's a puppet of the Persian Empire. But as David's heir, it is his task as as the king to lead the people to rebuild Jerusalem, and particularly to rebuild that temple. Zerubbabel said, I haven't got a chance. The temple is crushed like an egg. And all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to put this temple together again. The people were living with poverty. Only a handful had come out of exile. The crops were failing. Nothing was going right. They were taunted by their enemies all around. Zerubbabel said, it took me 20 years to lay a foundation. We're never going to finish this temple. In that light, we understand verse 7. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Now the mighty mountain is a, a figurative way of saying any obstacle that stands before you will be made a level ground. And there were a lot of obstacles. We mentioned the poverty. 
Not enough people. Not enough resources. Taunting by the enemy around. There simply wasn't a gung-ho attitude. But those obstacles will be removed. And they will be removed by the rich blessing of the Holy Spirit himself. He will work miracles so that in four years' time, the temple would be rebuilt. Now, what does that mean, the miracle of the Holy Spirit? Does that mean that every morning when the people got out of bed and strolled over to the temple site with their coffee in their hand, they didn't drink coffee in those days, but whatever they were drinking, in the morning, walk out to the temple and say, look, honey, another section of the wall has miraculously appeared in the night. That the, the Holy Spirit does miracles, just building that temple all by himself. It doesn't happen that way. The miracle of the Holy Spirit is working through the hearts and the hands of the people. You see, one of the problems at that time is because the people weren't putting their trust in the Lord, the crops were failing. People didn't have enough to eat. There was no energy. There was no enthusiasm. There was so much opposition all around. But if the people would trust in the Lord, then the miracle of the Holy Spirit is that the crops would grow. People would have lots to eat. The enemies would back off. Other nations would give resources. And the people would have this gung-ho attitude, trusting in the Lord, seeing his blessings, and put their hand to it, put their foot to it, build that temple, and do it in four years' time. In short order, even the capstone would be replaced by Zerubbabel on the newly built temple, there by the grace of God, the working of the Holy Spirit, with people shouting, God bless it, God bless it. So the vision of the golden lampstand with all the oil coming down becomes clear to us, brothers and sisters. The lampstand with the seven lights that is the people, that is the church. The oil that's flowing down is the Holy Spirit himself. That oil comes from the trees into the bowl, down the seven pipes, to the lamps, so they keep on burning brightly. And that's the message to Israel. The Holy Spirit is so rich and so powerful and will keep coming and coming and coming on you and empower you to do whatever you want, whatever God has placed before you as your goal in life to the praise and the glory of God. And as if that were not enough, the Lord said to Zechariah, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. So the foundation of the temple has been laid. Pretty soon, Zerubbabel is going to take up the plumb line. And every carpenter and every building builder in this congregation can tell you what you do with a plumb line. A plumb line makes the wall straight the corner's right. You can also put it straight across the ground to, to measure out and lay out your walls. Zerubbabel picks up the plumb line and all the people follow him and enthusiastically will build that temple because they trust in God. Another remarkable sentence here is that the seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. You must have thought, what's that about? seven eyes of the Lord. It's probably connected to chapter 3, verse 9, where we read, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. These 
There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So the seven eyes are the seven eyes of the Lord. Seven, as we know from the Bible, means completeness, perfection. It just so happens I have two eyes. I can look straight ahead, and my peripheral vision is not bad. I can, I, if I stand here, I can see that door, and I can see that window. That's as far as I can see. I can't see down there or up there or what's behind me. God has got seven eyes, symbolically speaking. He looks in every direction. He sees everything. So not only is God omnipotent, he can do all things. He is omniscient. He sees all things. The Lord is saying to his people, build the temple. I give you my spirit to do it. I am almighty. I oversee everything. That is incentive enough for all the people to take up their task in full faith, knowing God is with them. The temple will be built and God will dwell in in their midst with his saving presence. Now, we should understand, brothers and sisters, as we see with all the minor prophets, that whatever is said here about the rebuilding of the temple doesn't end with that temple. The minor prophets speak of a glorious temple to be rebuilt. You know what? The temple that Zerubbabel built wasn't that great. Wasn't all that hot. Wasn't all that outstanding that you would say, this is the most glorious thing the world has ever seen. It's beautiful. God dwells in their midst. But it is pointing to a better day. and It's pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ. On more than one occasion, Jesus Christ spoke of himself as the temple. Tear it down, and in three days I will rebuild it. He is the temple because he is God dwelling in the midst of his people. Emmanuel, that's what temple means. God dwelling with us. Jesus Christ is God's son. Dwelling in the midst of his people. Talking to them. Performing miracles. But most importantly of all, every person he met and talked to, and that person believed in him. All the sins of that person were transferred from the sinner to Jesus Christ, and he went to the cross of Golgotha. When he hung there on the cross, you would say, this is a day of little things, as our text says. Who was Jesus? A carpenter. A Galilean peasant. Galilean peasants are a dime a dozen. Nobody cares for a Galilean peasant. Crucify him. Big deal. One man dies. There's nothing to this. It's little. It's insignificant. But when our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Golgotha, the universe shuddered. Time and eternity revolved around that single moment when Jesus breathed his last And gave up his spirit. The world. The universe. Time and eternity knew that at that moment. Emmanuel died for us. Paid for our sins. Washed them all away. Made it possible for us to be the sons and the daughters of the living God. Nothing can separate us from his love. Because our sins are washed away. And we are heirs of life everlasting. Indeed, brothers and sisters, it is on this point 
that the last part of our text hones, zeroes in on. And that's our final point, the implications. In our final point, we're, we're going back. The last part of the text goes back to the two trees, the two olive trees. Remember we said the olive trees hang over the, the bowl and they drip the oil into the bowl via those, those two pipes. Now, you know what? When, when, when you have a, a vision... You have to suspend your literal way of thinking. Because you know how you make olives? You don't walk up to an olive tree and get the oil out of a tap. You, you, oil doesn't drip from an, from an olive tree. An olive tree has olives. When they're ripe, they get picked and they're pressed. And then you get the oil out of that. But this is a symbol. You have to suspend your, your literal way of thinking. And just, just picture that. The, the olive tree dripping its oil into the bowls, into the bowl, down the seven pipes to the lamp so they can all burn brightly. And that oil is the Holy Spirit. But now Zechariah says to the angel, what are these two olive trees? What are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? So Zechariah knows there's something pretty special about that. The angel says, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, what two people have been specially anointed? We know that. That's Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the son of David. So through their work as office bearers, through their leadership... They will be specially endowed with the Holy Spirit to lead the people to trust in God, experience his blessings, know their sins are forgiven, and build that temple. And know that God is in their midst. However, again, we understand that these two men are symbolic of the one who is to come. Back in chapter 3, verse 8, there's an amazing sentence. One of the most amazing sentences in in uh, Zechariah, verse 8, Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates, that's the other priests, seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. I bet you figured that out already, didn't you? Joshua, high priest, you are symbolic of things to come. You point to my servant, the branch. Now, we all know who, who, in the Old Testament, who the servant of the Lord is. Who the branch is that comes from that stump of Jesse. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. This whole passage is pointing to Jesus Christ, who will die for our sins, and then on Pentecost will pour out his spirit. That oil that comes dripping down into the bowl, down the pipes, to the lights. That is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Rich and powerful. Now you celebrated, I did too, we celebrated Pentecost last Sunday. And we focused on the gift of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, don't don't think of Pentecost as just a, quite an interesting, important moment in history that you remember one day a year. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit has catapulted the world and the church into the last days of the world. We are so much more incredibly rich 
in this age of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, gone down the pipes, so to speak, to the church, so that the Holy Spirit is here in, in this church this morning, but just as importantly, he is in your heart. That rich oil that causes you to burn brightly and be a light to the world around you is the Holy Spirit. He is powerful. He is animated. He is able to to give you faith to know Jesus so that your sins are washed away, to be born again so that your life is changed. Even when you have been caught up in horrible sin in your life, when sometimes you say to yourself, I feel like I'm not even a believer with what's going on in my life. The Holy Spirit is able to seize you to break with your sinful past and to show yourself gloriously as the image of our Lord Jesus Christ and more and more to give your life to the praise and the glory of God. The power of the Holy Spirit changes your life, changes a church, and causes us to be a bright light in the world around us. Notice the last words of our text. These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, suddenly we've gone from insignificant Jerusalem to the whole earth. And you wonder, is this a mistake? Is this a geographical error? No, again, brothers and sisters, what our text is pointing to is that what starts in Jerusalem is only the small beginning of what will come to consummation on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out. You know, Jesus Christ, when he was ready to ascend into heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, after Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he poured out his Spirit, things looked pretty insignificant. He had this ragtag team of 12 apostles and a handful of followers We're about to be severely persecuted. What could come of that? But do not despise the day of little things. On the day of Pentecost, on one day, 3,000 people came to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And thousands of people were added every day. That is the power of the Holy Spirit bringing so many people from darkness into light. People who were on the way to hell, on the way to heaven and to everlasting glory. Now, it seems like today we're not living the life of Pentecost, and that's to a large degree due to the world in which we live. I mean, can you stand up as a Christian in our society and be respected? Write a letter to the editor of the journal telling them how you feel, what you believe about homosexuality about sexual immorality in general, about marriage, about family, about divorce. You will be ridiculed, and maybe you'll be drawn before the Human Rights Commission, and you will lose every penny that you have. Speak the truth, even in love in our world, and you can be finished, as far as humanly speaking is concerned. So you say, well, what are we going to do? I still remember a time as a boy when a student from our theological college could go to the park on a Sunday evening and deliver a a message and people would flock together. Wouldn't it be something if Reverend Slump every Saturday or Sunday night could go down to Horlack Park 
preach the gospel and hundreds and thousands of people would, would show up and want to hear the gospel, maybe by God's grace, believe and be saved. But who does those things? Reverend Slump is not there. I'm not there. Who goes out there? What do we do in the way of evangelism here in our, in our own city? We, we say to ourselves, it doesn't matter. It won't work anyway. What good will it do in our world? Our text says, who despises the day of small things? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You do not know what the possibilities are out there. One thing I know is nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. I know that this church will survive, provided we trust in God and walk in his ways. And who knows how many people out there are just waiting. They don't even know it, but they're just waiting to hear someone stand up and tell them about Jesus Christ to give them the hope that passes all understanding. The only thing that, that holds us back from being great, the only thing that holds us back from, from being a light that burns so brightly in this world, the only thing holding us back is our own attitude, our own lack of faith, our own disbelief. The Spirit is there. He is all-powerful, and he is in us. Trust in God. Be powerful. Be rich. Be beautiful. And let it show in your family, your marriage, your church, and to the whole world around us that truly we are a light to the world. Amen.